Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Welcome to the second day of the Bible readings at Bank Worldwide. Today, Gary is going to be sharing from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to hand over to Gary now. Let's pray together. Loving Father, thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you that whatever point we're at on our spiritual journey, that whatever this week has been like, whatever today is like for us, that in your kindness you speak by your Spirit right into the heart of our experience. So correct our thinking and reawaken, strengthen our desires and shape our obedience that we might live in a way which brings pleasure to you, the one and only God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought about the effect that people have on you? I'm guessing it will be just the same for you as it is for me. Some people tend to bring out the best in us and others the worst. So when my younger brother and I get together, the conversation does tend to slide into a morass of old shared jokes and experiences and cryptic references to our former shared lives that make it very hard for anyone else to follow what's going on. There are people who draw out the cynic in me or the joker or even in one or two rare cases who make me go into my shell. Then there are those people whose lives are so compellingly Christ-like and attractive that they both spur me on to live for Jesus and make me feel deeply uncomfortable as I'm forced to face my own half-heartedness. I've met a few people like that over the years. Sharon, one of my own youth leaders, my future in-laws when I first encountered them, John, a recently converted professional poker player whom I met um, right there in Bangor, who radiated more gratitude to Christ than I've ever seen, Jim, the guy who ran the youth group with us when we lived in England, People whose godliness was so evident that even though I loved their company, at the same time they left me feeling a little bit exposed and vulnerable. Now hanging out with the Apostle Paul makes me feel exactly like that. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul gives us a little bit of his own autobiography. And he does it for two reasons. First, because the Thessalonians' fellow citizens were putting the church there under huge pressure to distance themselves from Paul and the gospel. He was hated by two separate groups, respectable pagans who were preoccupied with the Roman patronage of the city and didn't want anything jeopardizing their privileged position in the empire, and Jews who hated both Paul the traitor and Paul's message. So Paul writes to defend his integrity and his motives. But never one to miss the opportunity to commend the gospel. Paul makes sure that even as he writes defensively, he also does something positive. He lays out a template, a model for Christian life and ministry, which is one of the most succinct and helpful in the whole Bible. So as we come to this chapter to spend time with Paul at his most personal, be prepared to both be taught and built up and to be painfully exposed. I should just say before we get going that there is something profoundly un-Irish about this part of the New Testament. It's one of the things that Northern Ireland and Australia, I think, share. 
we share a sneaking discomfort about what Paul's doing here because talking about ourselves like this, in fact, to do anything which sounds vaguely like big noting ourselves, as they say here in Australia, talking ourselves up, it's deeply countercultural. And yet, slightly annoyingly, Paul does it over and over again in the New Testament. He repeatedly calls the people he writes to, and by extension calls us, to follow him as he follows Christ. And why did he do that? He was prepared to take on the full force of the Greco-Roman version of the tall poppy syndrome because he knew that whether he liked it or not, he was living on display. People were watching him. And he knew that his message and his life had to match up. And he did it too, because these new Christians, these first generation Gentile believers, needed living, breathing examples of what it looked like to follow the Lord Jesus wholeheartedly. He did it because he knew that all of us who take on the name of the Lord Jesus, whether in Macedonia in the first century or in the increasingly hostile environment of the English-speaking world in the 21st century, or in any of the cultures to which God may send us with the gospel, we need to take seriously the reality that we are living on display. And the way in which we act really does matter for the sake of the gospel. So let's get into 1 Thessalonians 2. There are three basic movements in this section. First, Paul talks about his inner motives from verse 1 to the middle of verse 7. Then he moves on to his methods. And then finally, in verses 13 to 15, to his expectations. So today, I just want to point out three things that Paul's defense of himself asks of us if we're to live steadfastly on display before our world as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Here's the first. We're to live before an audience of one. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, or probably better, was not insincere. Paul's not simply saying that his visit to Thessalonica hadn't been a complete waste of time. He's making a slightly different point. His arrival wasn't accompanied by trumpets or drums or a massive pre-publicity campaign. He just showed up and preached the gospel. Now, in Paul's day, the coming, the arrival of an ancient orator could be quite an event. Dio Chrysostom, for example, one of those orators, modestly describes his arrival and the next stop of his empire tour like this. I was escorted with much enthusiasm and honor, the recipients being grateful for my presence and begging me to address them and advise them and flocking about my doors from early dawn. But no such showmanship for Paul. He came, he preached. He lived the gospel. That was it. In fact, the context of his arrival was suffering, verse 2. But though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There's nothing in Paul's arrival that smacks of empty show. In fact, he comes carrying the stench of suffering on his clothes. But in the words of the key phrase in verse 2, he said, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Now, the phrase in our God here is a bit tricky, but it's important. Greg Beale, in his excellent short commentary on Thessalonians, argues that the phrase in our God should be translated before our God. You see, Paul here is talking about living before an audience of one. But even if that's not what he has in mind in verse 2, it's certainly what he's talking about in verses 3 to 4. Read with me. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we'd been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, Paul's ministry is neither morally nor intellectually flawed. It doesn't flow from dodgy motives, nor is it designed to reel in suckers. His ministry has integrity. 
It's straightforward and according to Paul, his ministry has been approved by God. It bears the glorious stamp of God's approval. See, Paul insists that his ministry has been approved, tested and found genuine by God himself. But what exactly does that mean? I'm sure we'd all like that to be true of us, whatever role we play in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. But can it be? Is this just for apostles and their chums? Or can we all have a life and ministry which is tested and approved by God? Actually, the idea of being tested by God is not a new one. It's found repeatedly in the Old Testament. Both David and Jeremiah, for example, underline their need and dread of being searched and tried and tested by God. David writes in Psalm 17, verse 3, You've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, and you'll find nothing. I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. Psalm 139. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked, uh, I beg your pardon, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand on me. And Jeremiah describes God in similar terms. Jeremiah 11, verse 20. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. 12, verse 3. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. God himself, in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, says the heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Our God is the God who, as Paul says in Romans 8, searches hearts. Paul lives with this awareness. He insists that God searches him, examines him. And when it comes to preaching the gospel, Paul is passed. His ministry bears the mark of God's approval. It's not, of course, that Paul is laboring under any illusion of his own sinlessness. Paul knows and exposes repeatedly that his motives, that our motives, are never completely pure. Our actions are never completely selfless. But there is another sense in which God looks at us and our our lives and our service to the Lord Jesus and pronounces either his yes or his no on what we're doing. Almost in a pass-fail sense. See, this is the same language that Paul uses when he tells Timothy to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. See, when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus, God tests us and he either approves or disapproves of what we're doing. Now, of course, this isn't a demand that we plunge into an endless cycle of navel-gazing. But it is a warning to regularly ask ourselves before God if we're living for him. Because he is the only one that matters. He alone knows our hearts. We need to live before an audience of one. A few months ago, I bought a new set of bathroom scales. I bought them partly because I wanted to keep an eye on my weight and partly because they're wireless and linked to my phone, which is just really cool. Now, there are two mistakes I can make with my bathroom scales. One of them is to become preoccupied with them so that every time I set foot in the bathroom, I step on the scales and start to agonize over the daily fluctuations of my weight. That would not be good. The other mistake I can make is to forget they exist and remain completely oblivious to any weight gain, change in my body mass index, heart rate or muscle density. I did say the scales were cool and they give the weather forecast as well. But you see, when it comes to testing our hearts, we should neither obsess about it nor ignore it. We need to search our hearts and get on with it. 
Search our motives, our habits, our affections regularly, but not obsessively, as we then forget about ourselves and throw ourselves into serving the Lord Jesus gladly. Paul himself writes about this elsewhere with beautiful balance. It's clear that Paul does check that he's serving Christ wholeheartedly, but he takes great care not to spiral into introspection nor to be crippled by what he, uh, what he thinks other people think of him. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found helpful, that, that they be found faithful, that they are approved. But Paul then goes on. Verse 3, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. He says this, therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, Paul wants to be approved by God, so he periodically checks that he's living in a way that fits with the gospel, that he's living for the glory of God, and then having checked, he gets on with it, forgetting about his own insecurities and what other people might say as he pursues that beautiful, quiet word from God himself, well done, good and faithful servant. Which takes us to the second phrase we need to look at in verse 4. We need to please God. For Paul, pleasing God's a really important category. You might be surprised to know he talks about it in every single one of his letters. For Paul, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we aim to please our God and King. How do we do that? Well, for Paul, because we are in Christ, we're now able to please God by living in a way which reflects the likeness of and promotes the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. We please God by talking up Jesus and acting more like Jesus. Now, honestly, how much have you thought lately about pleasing God? It's a powerful and a deeply relational idea. And to be honest, I'm not sure we think about it as much as we should. Jesus was focused on pleasing God. So was Paul. Paul goes as far as saying in Galatians 1 verse 10... For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, if we're to live in the light of his coming, then our motivation, our focus, our joy will be in bringing pleasure to the one who has made us, who has rescued us, who is changing us, and who will return so that we might enjoy life with him forever in the new creation. Do you see what a big deal this is? We belong to a father who has lavished his love on us in the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has taken on humanity so that in his person, people like you and me might be reconciled to God, transformed, empowered, and equipped to please him. That's our goal. And how can we tell if we're pursuing that goal? How can we tell if we're actually bringing pleasure to the flawless, peerless God of the universe? Well, what Paul says next helps. Paul makes it clear as he reminds the Thessalonians of what he did when he visited them. Now, his approach here is a little bit like 1 Corinthians 13, where he describes love by telling us what love isn't. You know, love isn't boastful, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, and so on. So for Paul, living to please God means no flattery, no greed, and no glory hunting. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for grade, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, there is both a punctuation and a translation issue at the start of verse 7, but on balance, I think that the phrase at the start of verse 7 should be taken with verse 6. So Paul's arguments like this, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were like babes among you, where the new part of the argument starting in the second half of verse 7. But overall, Paul's point's really clear. 
The Greco-Roman world was full of travelling orators and philosophers, many of whom were in it for what they could get. And one of the most effective ways of ingratiating yourselves with people was to butter them up, to flatter them. The Roman satirist Lucian thought this was such an issue in the second century that he wrote an entire book about such people called Alexander the Quack Prophet. But Paul wasn't into that, nor should we be. But I should warn you, it's a real temptation, whether we're pastors or cross-cultural workers, or for that matter, anyone seeking to serve the Lord Jesus. See, many of us are at heart people pleasers. And even for those of us who generally don't care what others think of us, there are always some individuals whose opinion, for some reason, matters to us more than we can explain. Which makes it really easy for us to be sucked into speaking in a way that they will be comfortable with. Or making decisions that they will approve of. See, Paul is calling out every subtle, even unconscious attempt to play to the crowd, to make people like us, to try to impress, to win respect by pandering to people. So flee from either seeking or offering flattery. Because Paul says it's incompatible with living to please the Lord Jesus. It's not living before an audience of one. Perhaps surprisingly, another thing that can wreak havoc with our attempts to live to please God, according to 1 Thessalonians 2, is greed. John Calvin says, human cunning has so many labyrinthine recesses that greed and ambition are often concealed in it. I wish I could argue with Calvin, but I can't. We're always just a moment away from greed flaring up in our hearts. The first time I was invited to Australia uh, by a man called John Chapman, who visited us in Bangor in uh, 1998-99. The first time I was invited, I was flown business class. It was a great surprise. I'd never travelled business class, nor did I ever think I would. Apart from an occasional envious glance at the huge seats as as I made my way to and from cattle class, at the back of the plane, I'd never given it much thought. Then I flew from London to Sydney on the upper deck of a jumbo jet in luxury that I did not realize existed on a plane. And it instantly made my life much more complicated. That became clear on my way home when, as a veteran of one business class flight, I found myself bemoaning the fact on the return flight that I was sitting in the downstairs section of business class, which in my humble opinion was marginally less airy. One flight was all it took. And since then, every time I've boarded a long-haul flight, I've had to fight an overwhelming sense that I want a seat which goes flat. Don't underestimate the danger of greed. Because it too will strangle our desire to please God and live for him alone. And beware the desire for glory. Let's face it, all of us like to be appreciated, to be thanked, to be praised, even if modesty prevents us from admitting it. See, the hard thing is accepting the fact that this instinct flows out of the reality that we are glory thieves. From the very beginning, our first parents wanted God's position and God's role, and they've passed that desire on to us. We too want to bask in approval and adoration and even worship that belong only to God himself. We love glory. Naturally, we want to be pleased, to be praised more than we want to live for God. And this desire for glory will infect everything we do and needs to be acknowledged and exposed and brought into the light of the gospel and killed off. An old Puritan prayer says this, it is my deceit to preach and to pray and to stir up other spiritual affections in order to beget commendations for myself. Whereas my rule should be daily to consider myself more vile than any man in my own eyes. Let me learn of Paul. Let me lean on thee as he did, the prayer says, and live and work to please you. 
If we want to serve Christ in the long haul, if we want to live in the light of his coming, then this will be our world, a world of struggle and soul searching and repentance, a world, yes, of exhilaration, but also humiliation, a world of striving to speak for Christ's glory, of struggling to cope with pride when we're affirmed and self-doubt when no one says anything and self-pity and self-despair when we're criticized, which is why Paul is so insistent on the vital importance of living living before an audience of one, living with a childlike focus to please God alone. Which takes us eventually to the second part of Paul's defense and template for ministry. As he urges us from the middle of verse 7 through to verse 12 to love like God himself. But just before we move on to the second and third and don't worry, much shorter parts of this talk, let me flag up one other thing. Paul does write these words to give us a template of of steadfast gospel-shaped living in the light of his coming. But he decided to do it because people were saying terrible things about him and those whom he loved in Thessalonica were starting to believe it. That's really hard. There are a few things worse than being slandered, but one of them is when your best friends start to believe the slander. I think it would be a good resolution for us to make both to refuse to slander a brother or sister and to refuse to believe anything evil about a brother or sister in Christ unless it is firsthand. That is, unless we've talked to them about it. Unless it's true. (laughs) See, to do anything less is profoundly ungodly. I came across this sentence in James Denny's 1892 commentary, which brought me up short. Listen to this. Denny writes, To sympathize with detraction is to have the spirit of the devil, not of Christ. Be on your guard against such sympathy. You are human and therefore need to. Never give utterance to a suspicious thought. Never repeat what would discredit a man if you've only heard it and are not sure that it's true. Even if you are sure of its truth, be afraid of yourself if it gives you any pleasure to think about it. Just because we don't make stuff up about people doesn't mean we don't take a demonic pleasure in hearing it and passing it on. So in the way in which we speak about and comment on others, let's live before an audience of one. And now to verses 7 to 12. I recently read a marvelous book by an Australian author, Uh, Christos Chalkas. It's called Damascus and it's loosely based on the life of Paul in the early years of the church. Now Christos Chalkas famously wrote a book called The Slap uh, but he makes no claims to be a Christian and expresses no direct opinion about the claims of the apostles but he writes so movingly of the fact that it was the love of the first Christians for each other for the outcast, for the vulnerable, for female children who were often exposed on the mountainside to die because they were seen as of so little value, and for everyone else. Chalkas picks up that what you could say about the early church was that they took Jesus seriously when Jesus said they would be known for their love. I'm not really sure in Bible-believing churches across Northern Ireland or across Australia, we're quite so focused. But the unavoidable fact is that we are called to love like God himself. Now, even to say those words out loud confronts us with the reality that we just can't pull this off on our own. When we try, even with those who are closest to us and mean most to us, sooner or later we're confronted with the fact that we love ourselves more than other people and that's hard to face. We're not naturally nice people, which is what makes Paul's words so searching and exciting and inspiring. Because God makes it possible for people like you and me, people like Paul and the Thessalonians, to love other people through the gospel. Now, read with me how Paul describes his life and ministry in Thessalonica. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, being affectionately desirous of you, as the ESV clumsily puts it, like 
loving you desperately. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. For you remember our brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we mightn't be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You're our witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, I tend to think of Paul as a bit of a man's man, pretty robust and disciplined and straight talking, which means it does come as a little bit of a shock when he compares himself to a breastfeeding mother. But that's what he does. Paul says the distinguishing character of his group's visit to Thessalonica was love. Drawing on Isaiah 49 and 66 and Hosea 11, using the same phrase as in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29 when he speaks of a husband's care for his wife, Paul says we need to love like God himself. And that's really tough. For a start, to love people like this, we need to be able to share ourselves with them. To know them well, we need to get beyond our comfort zone, beyond our our group of natural friends, beyond people like us. Then we need to listen well and to ask good questions and to care enough to remember the answers and act on them. We need to open ourselves up to other people, exposing our flaws to them and putting our resources at their disposal over and over again and to allow them to help us. It's very demanding. But this is love, and this is the hard road to which we're called. We're called to love like God himself. Now, it's really easy to lose sight of this and to shoot for something easier. To be honest, it's much easier to become a bit better at teaching the Bible. It's much more straightforward to pick up a few tips on leadership. Learning to strategize is child's play compared to this. Showing up at our home group regularly, piece of cake. Coming every year to the worldwide... Even using a missionary prayer diary every day, nothing. Loving like God himself, it'll take a miracle. But this is what God calls us to, and this is what God equips us for. And it's what Paul describes in the rest of these verses. Not only was Paul like a nursing mother, he was like a hardworking laborer. He worked through the day, he worked in the evening so that he wouldn't put other people out so that they were able to hear and grasp the gospel. In a very unusual phrase, he piles up unusual words for effect. He says, you know how holy, righteous, and blameless our conduct was among you. He says, we threw ourselves into loving and serving you. We put ourselves out for you at every stage. See, if we want to win people for Christ, if we want to win people over, love them, work hard for them, put yourselves out for them. I hope you get this. To become a Christian, to commit to following Jesus, we're signing up to be the first name on the roster for the work party because we put ourselves out for other people. We're signing up to be the first at the prayer meeting Because we know praying for the work of the gospel and the lives of others really matters. We're signing up to be the first to show up at the building and the last to leave, to put out the chairs, to put away the chairs, to clean the kitchen, to move the tables, because we love people and want to serve them. We're signing up to celebrate the things that matter with people and to weep with them when their lives fall apart. We're signing up for sleepless nights as we watch people we know make dumb decisions and let us down. We're signing up for a lifetime of selfless disruption of our routine because other people matter more than we do. We're signing up for personal rejection, for at times our Christ-focused love for people will make them feel bad or guilty, and they'll take it out on us and exclude us. We're signing up for a life that will consume our every waking moment at times because we love people like God himself. Why would we do that? Why would we put up with all that? Because this is the only thing in life that really matters. Paul continues, verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Calvin said, No man will ever be a good pastor unless he shows himself to be a father to the church entrusted to him. 
not the chief executive, not even a stellar preacher who steps onto the stage to teach brilliantly before slipping away behind the curtain. No, Christian leadership is about being a father. A father who commands and comforts, who embraces and encourages, who insists and implores, who frets and guards and repents and weeps. Someone who's gentle and strong, empathetic and authoritative, one who constantly reminds people that the main game is being part of building the kingdom of God. And of course, this isn't just a command for pastors or elders. You see, as Paul writes to Titus, every man is to be a father to those following behind him, every woman a mother because we're called to love like God himself. So who on earth is worthy of such a task? Not me. Probably not you either. But our God has already shown us that he is the one who is the good shepherd. And it's in his footsteps that we as under shepherds follow. We serve in his strength, in his wisdom, in his love. This is our calling, our method. This is our hope. So live before an audience of one loving like God himself. And one more thing to bring us home. Verses 13 to 16, recognize what God is doing. If you want to live in the light of his coming, if you want to stay sane as we live a gospel-shaped, gospel-driven life, if you want to cope with disappointments and frustrations and delights and successes, then you really need to recognize what God is doing. He is the one who speaks and brings the church to birth out of nothing. He is the one who builds a kingdom which cannot be shaken. He is the one who brings all things together in this universe under one head, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a really good idea for us to recognize that. In verses 13 to 15, Paul thanks God for the way in which he worked in the Thessalonians as they embraced the message of the gospel. He thanks God for the way in which God himself through the gospel continues to transform them, for the way in which God himself has enabled them to imitate the the Lord Jesus by suffering for the gospel. Look with me at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displaced God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Paul picks up where he left off at the end of chapter 1. But this time, his focus is on what God is doing through the gospel. What's God doing? Changing people bringing them to new life in Christ and remaking them in the image of Christ. This is what happens when God works through his word. It's what's happening right now. Even now, as we open up God's word, God is humbling and correcting and reshaping and energizing us, straightening out our thinking, recalibrating our affections, setting us up to live for Christ in the light of his coming for the long haul. And he's doing it all through his word. You see, whether we realize it or not, this is how God works and what he's doing. So whatever ministry we're part of, wherever that is, whatever role we play, it'll always be like this. This is how God works. Sometimes it's harder to spot than others. Sometimes God works more dramatically than others. But the beautifully dependable truth is that God always works in basically the same way. He works through his word by his spirit, We just need to recognize that and commit to being part of it. So right now, do you recognize what God is doing in the ministries in which you're involved? If not, then look harder for this is how God works. Perhaps we need to ask God to make us people who can spot what he's doing in the lives of others instantly so we can thank God himself for that. Perhaps we need to ask God to help us see that Kindness and stickability and courage and love for the gospel aren't the result of people being nice, but people being transformed by the Spirit through the power of the Word of God. You know, I could be wrong, but I do think we need to work hard to hold on to this fact. God works through His Word. Yes, we need to be creative. 
Yes, we need to be contextually and culturally appropriate. Yes, we need to ensure the gospel is backed up and lived out in a fully orbed way. But we must never, ever lose sight of the towering fact that the only way God is committed to change people like us, bringing us from life to death, enabling us to keep going and keep growing in the gospel, displaying his glory through us, is through the power of his word. We can't take that for granted. It's why we constantly need to speak the gospel into each other's lives. It's why we need to commit to patiently, lovingly teaching Christ from all the scriptures in every context, lovingly encouraging each other to respond wholeheartedly, for this is how God works and there is no substitute. And of course, this is no easy option. Paul's under no illusions. He reminds us that even as God changes people to make us look more like the Lord Jesus, he's also working to harden people and bring them to judgment. That's the point, the final tricky phrase. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Greg Beale suggests we should translate that line. They finally complete their sins throughout time, especially recently, so that the wrath of God has finally come upon them. The, the idea is an Old Testament one that all through history, God's opponents have been piling up their sins, provoking his wrath, taking his patience for granted. But now God has said enough is enough. And he has begun to pour out his final wrath, which will reach full flood when Jesus returns. One more line from James Denny, which explains this beautifully, I think. He says this, The cup of their iniquity, those who oppose God, was filling up all the time. Every generation did something to raise the level within. The men who bade Amos be gone and eat his bread at home raised it a little. The men who sought Hosea's life in the sanctuary raised it further. So did those who murdered Zechariah between the temple and the altar. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, the cup was full to the brim. When those whom he left behind to be his witnesses and to preach repentance and remission of sins to all men beginning at Jerusalem were expelled and put to death, it ran over. God could bear it no more. Side by side with the cup of iniquity, the cup of judgment had been filling also and they overflowed together. So wrath has come upon them at last. Jesus spoke on the night before he died of drinking the cup reserved for us. But the reality is, if we will not allow Jesus to drink that cup for us, we must drink it ourselves. You see, for Paul, this reality is never far away. As a race, we, res we deserve the wrath of God and we will face it unless someone intervenes. Unless we're joined to Christ, our rescuer and our king, he is the center of history. He is the king of salvation. He is our Lord and God. Paul gets all this. And it's why the gospel is both exhilarating and exposing. So whether we like it or not, if we're in Christ, we're living on display. That's why living before an audience of one is the only sensible thing to do. It's why loving like God himself is the only appropriate response to the love lavished on us. It's why recognizing what God is doing in our world through salvation and judgment is the only way to make sense of the world. And it's the sobering reality which drives us to, to devote everything we are and everything we have to honoring and enjoying and obeying and proclaiming the one and only God, Father, Son, and Spirit. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all the glory. Amen.
Thank you to Gary for what he has shared and for Ruth for leading us in that song. Can I just encourage you to consider giving to Bangor Worldwide? You can either text to give, give online or give by cheque. And all of the details are on the website. Or Please do get in touch and we'd love to show you how you can do that. Today at Bangor Worldwide, on Tuesday, there's going to be a seminar at 2pm led by Rick Hill called Discipleship with a Global Perspective. And then at half past seven, our evening celebrations, Asa Pillard from uh, CWI is going to be sharing along with another guest. So we really encourage you to tune in at half past seven. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to live for an audience of one, because that is indeed the only sensible thing to do. Father, we pray that you would help us and enable us to love like God, as our appropriate response to the love that you have lavished on us. And Father, would you help us to recognise what you are doing in this world, because it is indeed the only way to make sense of it. And in a world that is feeling the effects of COVID-19, Father, would you help us to see what you are doing in this world. Father, in a world that is wrecked by sin and despair, and Father, I pray that we will be able to see through that, to see what you are doing in this world. Father, we recognise as well that it's not what we can do, but what you can do through us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move us to action in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. I absolutely love the week of Bangor Worldwide as we gather together in the mornings to pray together, then the incredible Bible teaching and in the evening as we hear from people, from missionaries right around our world of what God is doing. We're already beginning to pray through and think through and plan for 21 and 22. And you know, it's incredible that this ministry has been going now for, this is the 84th year, but it just doesn't happen. It costs money. And it, for that week, it costs approximately 30,000 pounds to run. And so in thinking through, how do we continue this ministry? How do we realize this vision that started all those years ago? And how do we engage people in mission and keep that profile there? And we would love to invite you to prayerfully consider joining with us to committing to be a friend of Bangor Worldwide. If you would like to commit to giving perhaps five, maybe 10 pounds per month to enable us to continue this ministry. But in any commitment, any friendship, there are always two sides and we are going to be committed to you as well. We will send out to you a monthly prayer update of what is happening with the missionaries that we are supporting, enable you to pre-book for special events and our opening nights and pre-book seats. And as a bonus, if you sign up before the 31st of August, we will give you a free copy of this book by Gary Miller, Need to Know. 
our heart is to channel money out to the missionaries to serve these people that are coming, that are speaking, these partners that we have all over the world. Because while we all cannot go, we can give, we can pray. So as we step out in faith and as we plan the next few years, we would love you to join us because we believe as we do take that step and we believe that God will provide through his people, we would ask you to join us in praying that he will and this will continue so as we can pass this baton on to the next generation and the next. That someone is standing here in Ward Park in Bangor in another 85 years talking about what God has done through this ministry. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.